Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words now be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Christianity is a wild religion. And we talked a couple weeks ago about the theological idea of subcontrario. That's a Latin phrase that means under the opposite. And we talked about how God works under the opposite of where we expect him to work. He's always doing the unexpected. We, we talked about that as we interpreted the parable of the dishonest manager in Luke chapter 16, buried underneath this really worldly story about debts and malfeasance, embezzlement, honestly, white-collar crime. We have a story about the radical grace of God, the perfect holy judge, who is also in Christ the forgiver of sins. We talked about how the Bible is chock full of this sort of thing. From the beginning to the end, Jesus' life, for instance, beginning in a backwater burg, Nazareth, to his crucifixion, defeating death forever by dying himself, the king of the world suffering on a criminal's cross. This is what I mean when I say that Christianity is a wild religion. But somehow this week, this one sentence from Jeremiah chapter 29 jumped out to me as one of the most egregious examples of this counterintuitive work of God. Today, we'll see that God is at work in sending his people into captivity and using that to teach them and us what love of neighbor really means, how it might actually be possible, and how it points to the good news of how Jesus Christ loved us, even when we were sinners. So Jeremiah, the prophet of God, is writing a letter, as we read at the beginning of chapter 29, from Jerusalem shortly after the first big wave of Jews has been taken off into captivity by Babylon. And he's writing to those very people. So let's orient ourselves. Remember the backstory. Israel is a small people in the midst of, surrounded by many other nations with many other gods. And Israel has always struggled to be faithful to Yahweh, even since the very beginning Remember when Aaron made the people a golden calf to worship even while Moses was on the mountain receiving the law from God. And it just went on from there. The gods of the other nations were always a little too attractive, gradually being brought into and corrupting Israel's worship. And that's why all of these prophets of God have been sent to them over the course of hundreds of years begging them to come back to covenant faithfulness. Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah. And the general message that Israel has heard from these men was simple. Be faithful to Yahweh. You are the people of the one true God. He has told you how to live and you are 
abandoning him. These nations that surround you with their false gods, they're drawing you away from the truth. You're supposed to be an example to them, not the other way around. You've got to stop chasing after other gods, whoring, the Bible calls it, or the judgment of the one true almighty God will come upon you. This is a message with direct contemporary relevance. We, the church, are supposed to be salt and light to the world, as Jesus commands us in Matthew chapter 5. We are to be affecting the world, and yet the temptation is strong to bend or even abandon the truth in order to be accepted by the world. We're supposed to be evangelizing them, but so often we find the world evangelizing us. You see this in Christians and in churches who conform themselves to the world, abandoning core truths of Scripture in an effort to be accepted by the culture that surrounds them. And that's exactly what's going on in Old Testament Israel. And so prophets were sent to them. For hundreds of years, men whose mission was to call them back to the truth. And this leads to the occasion for Jeremiah 29. All those years of unfaithfulness have come home to roost. God's deserved judgment has indeed come down. And a powerful foreign nation, Babylon, has come and taken the people away into captivity. And now, Jeremiah writes them a letter. And so we can read this letter as a word to us, too. Our situation isn't that different from the situation the people in Israel found themselves in. A people who possess the truth, but who, after all, are human, who are of shaky faith, and now find themselves in the midst of a pagan and unbelieving world. Now, it's obviously not a perfect parallel. You can't draw a straight line from Israel's Babylonian captivity to our current situation in the post-Christian West, but it's also not crazy. Israel was a people trying to be a faithful remnant in the midst of a culture that not only believed something completely different than they did, in this case, worshiping the false god Marduk, head of the Babylonian pantheon, People of God found themselves in a culture that was not only worshiping a different God, but also thought that their beliefs were worthy of mockery and scorn. So the parallels to today are real. So what does Jeremiah write to them? What is the content of his letter? Does he write an epitaph, writing off the people as lost forever because of their covenant unfaithfulness? No, these are still God's people. Does he write a screed telling them that he told them so and that they're just getting what they deserve? No, again. Is he issuing another warning telling them to isolate themselves from their pagan captors? Well, no. Here's what he says. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Live your lives, he's saying. Continue to do what God has called you to do. 
But it's now that he does the really counterintuitive thing. Now he gives them God's particular subcontrario commandment for their circumstance. Jeremiah tells them, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Such is our calling as we live in the midst of a modern pagan culture. Pray for it. Care for it. Evangelize it. Seek its best. Indeed, love it. Now, our culture may not worship Marduk, but it worships pagan deities nonetheless. Now, some, of course, literally worship nature. Things like Wicca are real and becoming more and more mainstream. But the most common idol today is the deity of self-actualization tied to personal and sexual freedom and autonomy. The idealized and unchained sexual self is the current head of our cultural pantheon. Uh, For a few days last week, if you Googled the word Velma, the Scooby-Doo character, a shower of digital confetti and various pride flags filled your screen. Because in a new show, Velma is out and proud, shall we say. And so Google, one of the most powerful companies in the world, celebrates. And celebrates on your phone. The temple to unfettered sexual expression is our culture's greatest cathedral. And what is our calling as a church? As the people of God? To hide from it on the one hand? Or to burn it down on the other? Neither says Jeremiah. Our calling is to seek the welfare of the city, of this culture, to pray to the Lord on its behalf. In its welfare, we are told, we will find our welfare. How might the Babylonian captives have received this letter? To love and care for Babylon. Well, the reaction, I imagine, was probably similar to Jonah's when the Lord told him to go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, another world power that threatened the people of Israel. You'll remember, of course, that when God tells Jonah to go and preach a message of repentance to the Ninevites, Jonah is horrified. Them? He exclaims. And then promptly gets on a boat going in the exact opposite direction. And even then, after he gets swallowed by a great fish, has it out with God in the belly of the fish, is spit up onto the land, and eventually finally goes to Nineveh to preach, Jonah is furious when the Ninevites actually repent. He hates those people, and he doesn't want them to have access to the love and forgiveness of God. But God's word to Jonah And to us is yes, even them. Love them in my name. So what I want to draw your attention to this morning is the biblical picture of what neighbor love really means. We have something of a progression here, don't we? 
We have the law given by God. And then God shows in more and more radical ways just how profoundly he wants that law kept. Look at it with me. First, we have what's called the second table of the Ten Commandments, which Jesus later sums up in this way. Love your neighbor as yourself. We read this at the beginning of every single Sunday service. The first half of the commandments are about loving God. The second half about loving other people. Simple. That's the big overarching commandment. Love your neighbor. But now let's turn the screws a little more. And just as an aside here, you're going to see that we're going to jump back and forth between Old and New Testaments. But that's okay. Because remember, the Bible is telling one story. Genesis to Revelation. So after we get the big overarching commandment to love our neighbor, Jesus takes it a step further, telling us to love not just our neighbor, but our enemies. You have heard that it was said, Jesus preaches in Matthew 5, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray to those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So the tip of the law's spear has been sharpened a little bit. This commandment has... A little more bite. Love your neighbor, which seems reasonable, has been hardened into love your enemies, which is just God's way of saying, you know, I really meant it when I said love your neighbor. I meant everyone. But we're not done even yet. We still don't totally understand the profundity of God's law. And so we come now to Jeremiah 29 and the prophet enjoining the people to, in effect, love Not just their neighbors, and not even just their enemies, some theoretical group of people that they don't like very much. But now they are called to love the very people who have carried them off into captivity. The people who destroyed their temple. The ones keeping them prisoner. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So you're following with me, right? God's word is elucidating more and more just how profound love your neighbor really is. Actually, love your enemy. Actually, love the pagan nation that has enslaved you. Yes, Jonah, even them. But how is a love like this How is it that we could possibly obey this commandment? We talked last week about Ephesians chapter 2 and how we were dead in our trespasses and sins before God saved us in Christ. We could very well talk about that passage every week. It's one of the most beautiful sections of the Bible, and it's actually what the whole Bible is about. You were dead, Paul writes, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And now listen to what he says as he describes a life spent worshiping in a pagan cult. 
like our current society or like Babylon. You, says Paul, were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That, he says, is how you were living. The passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and mind. It sounds like the front page of the New York Times or your Google results. But it is to members of this cult that good news in the person and work of Jesus Christ has come. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And there's the transition, right? You were dead, captive, captive to the passions of the flesh, a prisoner of the desires of the body and the mind, worshiping gods who are not gods, just like the world, just like the culture around you. But Christ has made you alive. By grace, you have been saved. In other words, you were a Babylonian, but now you have been made new in Christ. And that changes everything. Because now, what was given to you can be given through you to them. And yes, even them. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Love those who take you into captivity. And what does this radical love look like? Well, in the case of the Israelites in Babylon, it looked like Daniel. He cared for the city. In fact, he rose to be one of King Nebuchadnezzar's closest advisors. But he did not bend his beliefs to be accepted. He was salt and light, refusing to worship pagan idols, including the king himself, even to the point of being thrown to the lions. But the result was an opportunity for God to show his power saving Daniel from the lions and bringing Nebuchadnezzar himself to faith in the one true God. Now, our love for this world will look much the same. We will be salt and light, a beacon of truth and comfort to a lost and worn out world by holding fast to the truth of God's word and relentlessly sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. And how is it that we can love so radically at the risk of being thrown to the lions? How is such a love possible? Where does it come from? We love because we know that we ourselves have been loved. We ourselves have had the good news shared with us. We who are now alive remember that we were once dead. Daniel a faithful Jew would have remembered God rescuing his own stubborn and stiff-necked ancestors over and over again, out of Egypt, 
from the desert, even despite unfaithfulness. And we remember that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We love because we remember that we were once God's enemy. Because we remember that we were once captive, like the Israelites in Babylon. We were once captive to sin and death and the devil. And yet even in the midst of that sin and death, we were loved. We were made alive together with Christ. We were made new. In this is love, writes John in his first epistle. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The sacrifice that took all the separation away and made us one with almighty God. We say that every week and it is the fuel that makes any human love possible. It is the good news about Jesus Christ for you, a sinner. You were an enemy of Almighty God. You were a prisoner of sin and a disobedient child. And yet, in Christ, He loved you. He sent His Son, His only Son, His perfectly righteous Son to die for you. You love only because God first loved you. So rest in that love. Rest in his perfect love for you, his resurrecting love, his liberating love, his finished love. Rest in Jesus Christ and watch how through you and his church, God will love and redeem the world. Amen.